Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that space communist observer, Jeff Goad. Knocking out fools with my swords left and right. There we go. And this week, we're very excited to have as our special guest, Aaron King, a game designer and game shop worker in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and co-host of the uh, self-described, although not by Aaron, very sassy <laughs> RTFM podcast and RPG Manual Book Club. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Thank you. And thank you also. I feel like when we started RTFM, I had already listened to Appendix N. And so, if not an outright inspiration, definitely brewing in the compost of my brain. So, all right. So, we're, uh, it's all Appendix N all the way down. We're your Appendix yes. N. <laughs> yes, Appendix. exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, uh, Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself, starting maybe with uh, your sort of introduction to speculative fiction. Yeah, uh, my dad worked in a post office, but he was a postal mechanic. So if, if something would break, he would be there to fix it, but it meant he got a lot of downtime. And so he was always reading trashy sci-fi paperbacks, and he would pass those on to me. Uh, he bought me comic books a lot growing up, and then my mom just let us read whatever she had in the house, which was like Anne Rice, the complete Sherlock Holmes, all sorts of weird stuff. Um, so I got into comics, and then... I remember while I was living in this town of 500 people, this is pre-internet, in the Wizard magazine, the comic price guide, they were like, have you all heard of this new game, Magic the Gathering? And I I had not. (laughs) uh, And I sought it out and then found a game store and found out about uh, D&D and all the other games that were coming out then. I used my allowance to buy the black box set, which was like a basic as in the basic edition of D&D. Um, and from there, I got into AD&D First Quest, bought a bunch of World of Darkness stuff, uh, Planescape, but never found many people to play with mm. in my little town. And so a lot of it was just like reading them and imagining, making characters, copying art, drawing, you know, drawing drawings from the Monster Manual. Um, so it wasn't really until college, my second try at college, that I got to play an extended campaign. And that was when fourth edition was out, which I loved. I don't want to start an edition war here. I'm sorry <laughs> if that's a, a hot take. Um, <laughs> well, fourth edition is having a sort of a critical reappraisal. So I think that's... Uh, yeah, 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 which I love. Yeah. It's great for me, yeah. too. Um, but the guy that was DMing for us was also into improv and theater. And so he would run Fiasco and The Quiet Year and all these other kind of forge adjacent games as well. And that got me into... Uh, indie RPGs, uh, which I'm still very involved in to this day, but also I love the old school stuff. Uh, I've been diving deep on RuneQuest lately, 
So, mm-hmm. and by RuneQuest, you mean like second edition, the, the sort of the RuneQuest Classic, or are you talking about the? Latest? I read, yeah, yeah, I read RuneQuest Classic. Right. Uh, I now have the RuneQuest Role Playing in Glorantha. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ordered a bunch of the old, just like floppy little, almost zine style things that uh, Chaosium is reprinting mm-hmm. for the original version as well. So that's right. That's right. It's it's interesting because that's one the one sort of the old school game that we. I think other than Dan Alexander, not a lot of people talk about RuneQuest, right? In our in our sort of circle, right? Oh, I love RuneQuest. Yeah. I'll talk to anyone about RuneQuest. <laughs> yeah. I actually had the much maligned uh, third edition, the Avalon Hill one. Uh, so that was the uh, that was uh, interesting. But um, but first, potentially one of the early universal games, like like GURPS was in the in sense that you could sort of do anything at sort of at a realistic scale. Yeah, I've never played RuneQuest, but I've read I've read through the books and they look fascinating, and I've always wanted to get my uh what is it get my feet wet with RuneQuest, but i <laughs> right. i've yet to do that right right i mean because there's RuneQuest and then there's glorantha which are the two things you know like you could go really deep in either one of those things and sort of they're not 100 locked together but glorantha is a whole kettle of fish <laughs> in and of itself too so um and so what led you to sort of the design phase of your career i th- i think for so many people it is just kind of a natural step like if you're running D, i ran uh when fifth edition came out some co-workers of mine were like have you seen the stranger things have you heard of dungeons and dragons and i you know had up till that point never revealed that about myself because it wasn't <laughs> a going concern for me at the time um but i was like oh yeah i used to play i'd be happy to run a game you know for all of you and that turned into a weekly drop-in game with like 14 rotating players in it um, so for them, I was, uh, writing stuff, uh, West March's style, you know, trying to match D and D to that more flexible style. Right. And that was, you know, some game design. Right. And then I just thought that's really fun right. and, um, started writing right. my own games. And how did the, uh, did you sort of like, how did they like hone in on you? How did their gamer radar say, Hey, Aaron is a gamer. He must be a gamer. He must know about this stuff. <laughs> No, it was they I think they were just so I was actually working at a closed captioning place. Mm-hmm. I was in the sales department for a closed captioning place. And so people were talking about TV a lot. And Stranger Things was on and that was just in the air. Um, and, you know, the community episode about D&D had aired a few years before. Sure. <laughs> so I think it just came at that way. And, and they were just like, oh, you know, it was almost like a, an urban legend. They're like, is this game they play like do they still make D? is that you know we know it's a real thing but is it like a real thing and i said oh yeah it is and then my uh manager's husband actually was super into D back in the 70s and 80s and uh was very excited to join in, in that conversation and ended up giving me like oh i have an extra boot hill box set. Oh, wow. do you okay. want it like it just became this really cool thing where we scurried out of the woodwork and shared our excitement so okay. now, a good time and you so you mentioned an interesting thing again back, back to that transition to gamers i think there's a lot of people who maintain that obviously you know the game designer's intent only goes so far and the game is played at the table and that a lot of times the host or game master is it's a de facto designer right but taking that next step to being a you know, someone who's producing stuff for other people to use or consume is, is often seen as an insurmountable barrier. But now with Itch, which I think a lot of your work is up on and other yeah. places like that, yeah. it's just, it's there's no barriers, right? So it's- yeah, and I was also growing up like really into, uh, you know, I had my punk phase and so I got into zines sure. and stuff. DIY. And so yeah. people around me were always making these things and so that barrier 
seemed less insurmountable because I'd seen people climbing over it all the time and printing stuff out and selling it and handing it out. So to me, it was just kind of a natural dovetail of zine culture and game design and almost like community engagement. Like these are my friends. I want to have a little document that shows kind of what we've played and who their characters were and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and that's turned out to be truly invaluable for people like, um, was it John Peterson? Is that who wrote the, um, the history of D and D? Oh yeah. yes. Playing at the world. At the world. And- so he's looking at like all the issues of alarms, excursions and looking, finding all these like random type scripts and stuff like that. And so we're creating this sort of new game archeology span through. This, yeah. This my thing. dream is just to die and be forgotten until someone finds my zines. And then that's all that I've left the world. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a uh, Pharaoh Tutmos, uh, so-and-so, uh, 11th <laughs> Dynasty. Oh, it was right. the uh, Minneapolis uh, period. Uh, there was a... This, this, uh, There's absolutely a Minneapolis period of RPGs. We can get into that later, but like... <laughs> well, I know that you're a big uh, a proponent of Dave Arneson as as uh, originator or at least uh, oh, a yeah. guiding, guiding force of <laughs> D&D. So. Um, so my very mundane thesis is that the upper Midwest, RPGs could only have been created in the upper Midwest because long winters, relatively large finished basements or heated garages is what allows for RPGs to, to happen. Uh, Absolutely. And then you see like Nordic LARP, right. which is a uh, similar climate. And, you know, if you read all these old Nordic histories and stories and every winter history just stops because everyone's like, oh, we got to stay home. <laughs> We're stuck at home for the next eight months. Right. And so it does not surprise me that these two kind of veins of role playing, it's just like, can we please just pretend to be someone else somewhere else for the next three months? That's right. And then, you know, not Ludafisk again. <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously visited. You've obviously spent some time <laughs> up here. So. And although I haven't spent time in Minneapolis, I did. Um, I lived in Montana from the ages of six to 10. And my last two years of high school were six months of the year or below freezing. So I can yes. definitely relate. It's dangerous out there. We better stay inside and make believe. (laughs) So, Aaron, what are your recommendations for our audience uh, for books that they can read for inspiration for their gaming? Yeah, I tried to key off of this book that we're reading today. Um, One of them, if you like the part of the book that is about uh, the kind of enticement of writing and poetry as this kind of human nature, beauty, and also danger, uh, A Stranger in Alondria by Sophia Samatar. She is a fantasy writer. She actually did a bestiary with her brother who did the pictures. But uh, A Stranger in Alondria is about a rich son of a pepper farmer who goes into this more continental uh, society to learn how to do his father's business and is obsessed with writing and reading. He's like the first person in his family that learns to read and write. And he gets caught up in this semi-religious conflict um, that revolves around these two opposing religious viewpoints that have different views on writing and storytelling and preservation. And very on the cool. other one, very cool. yeah. speaking of cold Nordic times, is uh, Iceland's Bell, which is by Haldor Laxness, who's like a famous Icelandic writer. Um, and this is more historical fiction, but it's really weird and funny. And if you like the kind of muddy, picaresque, tromping around the downtrodden um, Iceland's bell is about this guy who is to be killed for stealing fishing line. Cause at that time, I think the, I think Denmark ruled Iceland and they, you had to buy Danish fish. It was illegal to catch your own. 
And so he gets drunk with his executioner the night before, and they stumble off into the swamp, and only he comes out. He has no recollection of what happened. <laughs> the, the executioner is found dead, and so he goes on the run. And so he's just this peasant weirdo trying to run away while behind him there are scholars tracking down Icelandic sagas and trying to kind of recreate Iceland's greatness amidst this like weird, you know, muddy peasant hiding in the woods and sailing and joining, you know, a, a militia across the sea and stuff like that. Oddly enough, I almost feel like if a movie was to be made of this, it should be done by Sergio Leone. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Right? So I don't know how you would get, uh, you know, Esther Madura to stand in for Iceland, but <laughs> it would be hilarious. <laughs> I would watch that. Just, just, just like the scenes from Django where he's like in the mud and the blood and stuff. It definitely has that feeling. So there we go. There we go. And uh, all right. Actually, we should mentioned the movie of the book that we're reading but this week we're reading arkady and boris trugatsky's hard to be a god what editions is everybody working with i have the 2014 um what is this the chicago review press it's got the picture from the movie on the cover of it um it's apparently the preferred translation um and it's got a nice little forward and afterward with some additional information so that's what I'm working with. Terrific. Um, Aaron, are you working with the same one or a different version? I have, I believe, the same translation, but it's published by SF Masterworks, which has those bright yellow spines. You sure. see them. The I see them at like yeah. remaindered bookstores. Right. A always, lot. always at remaindered bookstores. I see them at the Strand, the Harvard bookstore. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is uh, translated by Olena Bormashenko and it has the intro by Ken McLeod. So I think it might be even the same edition just published by someone else i am pretty sure you're correct and uh, i'm reading the ebook of the chicago review press version so same thing so there you go and uh before we dive into talking about the book as book uh let's do our high gaxian word of the week um so there were some very good candidates from our book club but the one i settled on is this one and we'll see if it's the same one that you picked aaron <laughs> metropole metropole um so in this particular case, uh, you know, people will think of metropolis or mother city was what it literally means. But what really, in this context, um, the additional meaning is the parent state or the parent, the center of a colonial empire. Um, so I think it's important because we're talking about space communists, but he's still always talking, referring to the metropole, going to the metropole. So how about you, Aaron? What's your, was that your word or did you have a different one? It's not mine, but I did have to look it up because I didn't know what it meant. There you go. So I'm right there with you. Uh, no, I picked anisotropic. Mm -hmm. That was a good one. Which is key to the start and the end of the book, the only parts that are set on Earth. Um, and it is a word that for like a material that assumes different properties in different directions, like wood grain, if you do something along the wood grain, like... It, it's smooth, and if you go against the grain, it's rough. And in this book, it's talking, it's referring to like a street as anisotropic. And it's a, I mean, it, it implies a one way street, but it takes on some other meanings, maybe, depending on how you read the ending. So mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting that both anisotropic and impecunious were words that when we were introduced to them in the text, they were used many times within a short period. <laughs> Those and impecunious then, dawns. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that was brought up in the, uh, like, is it a, uh, you know, it's, it's an artifact of translation, obviously. Right. But the, the translator made a very distinct choice to use that every single time. Right. 
And so I don't think it's an adjective. I think it's um, a, a, an epithet in sort of the classical sense of the word. It feels like something out of Don Quixote. Right. I would not be surprised if someone in that book is described or if Don Quixote himself insults someone as being impecunious around him. So Certainly makes sense. So uh, this is a reread for you. Right. Yeah, I actually read it almost exactly a year ago. Um, I'd never heard of it before. My friend Dave works at a micro cinema here in Minneapolis, like a theater that seats like 50 people, only has one showing room. And he saw the movie Hard to Be a God there. And he's like, oh, it's just a muddy, brutal movie. And so in my mind, this was like a very muddy, brutal book. And so I read it last year as like a spooky month reading. Um and while there are parts of that that apply to the book, I think the book is a lot more kind of adventurous and freewheeling than the movie. Mm-hmm. I think so. And you have you have had a chance to see the movie. Or no, that? I didn't. Okay. I, 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 so if you have opinions, I, I would will, love to I hear. I will them. mention about the movie. But Jeff, what was your uh, initial take on this book? I have not watched the movie. Um, I'm curious. I, I might do it. So My you're experience- uh, you're, a stri- you're uh, uh, hard to be a god curious. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> For the book, I there's a lot that I really enjoyed about it. I'm really glad to have read it. I can tell that this is an important piece of literature, and I think that it's um, what it was for when it was is um, really interesting. I think there's a lot of very cool conversations happening in the text about kind of the nature of humanity, and uh, there's some really cool conversations that are happening here, but I didn't really have fun reading it. And I had kind of a hard time keeping track of some things. And by the time the book was over, I am totally comfortable admitting that I then had to go and read the Wikipedia um, plot synopsis just to kind of review everything so that it could all kind of gel together and coalesce because it really wasn't for me. There was a lot that I still wasn't completely really fully grasping. Um like I wasn't quite getting like were the greys their own species or were this was that just a, a faction and I wasn't quite connecting how this last part connected to the first section so there were a lot of things that I was very confused by but I do think there are some very cool characters and set pieces here and it was um it was a very interesting read. Um, Aaron, it's funny. You actually literally cued on to the exact differences between the film and the book. So <laughs> without having seen the film, that film is um, uh, punishing might be the right word. I don't know. Um, I did see it at the Anthology Film Archives. Uh, in uh, Jeff, you'll be familiar with that. And I can't remember if it was with the new seats or if it was still with the old hard plastic seats that they used to have in there. And they don't. Have, there's no rake in that theater either. And so, so the back of my neck was incredibly cramped for three hours looking up at that. And there's never been a movie with more fog, mud, and shit than. <laughs> Hoy, were you ever at the Thalia Theater before that was renovated? Way, 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 way back then. But I think only yeah, once. One of, one of the only movie theaters I've ever heard of that had a reverse rake. <laughs> so you were actually kind of like leaning back and staring up at the screen, and each and each progressive row was like further down yeah. uh it wasn't very quite, strange was completely way. flat but the, yeah it was um uh, incredibly painful but i think maybe it was appropriate to see it in this context um and i won't say that you shouldn't see it um but just know that you go into that but as as you mentioned aaron there's a lot of humor and actual sass in the book even given how dark the subject matter is so i think that's a big difference that was not there in the movie um and so 
and for other reasons of things that are just going on in my life right now. I really uh, thought this book is important to me. It's not difficult to read, but as Jeff, you said, mentioned that even so, I still have to look up some things and, and you know, go back and forth. So, oh, what's the context of this? I know that they're talking about mid 20th century Soviet communism and, and issues there. Um, but there's a lot of resonances to stuff that's happening right now in our society. Um, especially the anti-intellectualism. So yeah. I, yes. you know, um, so I think it's definitely a book that has, continues to have resonance, even if it's of a very specific time and period. Um, having said that, what were the, some of the things that really sort of, uh, jumped out at you, whether it was set pieces or characters or, you know, anything that you would like to talk about there, Aaron? Uh, I was really intrigued by, um, kind of the relationship. So I don't know if anyone needs a plot synopsis, but basically some earth astronauts from our future go to a planet that's like roughly medieval. And all these astronauts are from like an imagined successful Soviet union. They are all communards together. They're all like the dream of communism has come true for them on earth. And so they're going to kind of just observe this planet that is roughly analogous to our middle ages um, and I thought that was a really interesting way to approach, uh, like colonialism or maybe potentially also anti-colonialism. Um, like it's one of the few books where they're not like trying to harvest anything on this planet. They're at the beginning, not trying to interfere at all. Um, they're not, they're trying hard not to influence these people, but just to kind of observe them and make sure they don't kind of destroy themselves, I guess, ostensibly is their mission statement. Um, and compared to like American sci-fi, it's such a breath of fresh air because American sci-fi is always like, we're basically going in with a militia. We're armed. We're colonizers. We want the metal here. We want to use this as a, a staging point for a military something, or like, this is our fun planet now. Right, right. And, and, <laughs> Sorry, residents, but we're here now and we live here right, and it's and, ours. And it's very technocratic on top of that as well, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, yeah. No, I think those are all definitely uh, key points. And and so once that, that first uh, difference there jumped out at you, what was the next thing that really struck you? I mean, it's just... I love a good romp. This is just such a picaresque romp. Like I mentioned, Don Quixote is one of my favorite books. Um, other Russian writers like Mikhail Bulgakov, just these kind of fun books about anti-intellectualism and government oppression that still manages to find these really strange or absurd moments. Um, and so the main character is just like, romping through uh this planet he has to act like this noble dawn and so he gets really almost seduced at times by the power that he has and he has to consciously resist it but a lot of that is through going out and getting drunk with his rich friends and making sure he eats his anti-hangover pill in time <laughs> and being known as the greatest swordsman in the world but he's never slain an opponent kind of thing mm -hmm. um he's walking this careful path that is almost like uh like the funniest parts of like a superman comic when he's trying to convince lois lane that he's not superman <laughs> right. uh just these kinds of uh really fun swashbuckling times right, right. 
I also really enjoyed the Orwellian aspects of this. I'm also really curious if the Strugatsky brothers living where they lived were able to access like a text like 1984 in order to have actually been inspired by it. But how there's like, there's the street of overwhelming gratitude. And then there's the Mary Tower and the Mary Tower is where all the torturing happens. And of course, we have like a very interesting backstory for why it's called the Mary Tower, but it is still nonetheless called the Mary Tower. And if you're being taken there, it is a very unmerry place to be taken Mm -hmm. right the music that comes from it now is the screams of the torture and stuff like that (laughs) which is the music that always came from there but the difference was at one point somebody wanted to have um um, a live band playing in the courtyard and have to hear the torture (laughs) and that's why it became called the merry tower but yes absolutely it doesn't have sort of that loose decadence of you know malibity probably has a merry tower too right but that has sort of a loose romantic decadence this is just you know well, but in Melnibane, the people are being tortured precisely in a way that they are creating the orchestral the sound. Right. This is this is just like <laughs> you know goons, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it was really fun also seeing the way that like we encounter these characters who talk about kind of their worldview in such a way that like um it really gives us a good understanding as to where they're coming from. Like at one point there's a character named Don Tamio or Tameo on page 52 of my text that says the gentry demands that the peasants and the craftsmen rabble be forbidden to show their faces in public space in public spaces in the streets. So just like these like little moments where these people are like, we don't even want to see that there are people who do work. We, we should, our eyes shouldn't be sullied by having to look upon the people who are paving our streets and cleaning our streets. And, and I, I think it just does a really good job of showing us that like, I guess showing us kind of what's happening in the minds of these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they keep checking with in with Don Tomeo, like as disaster hits the city, he's still out there and he's like, oh, I've revised my law. Beautiful peasant women can be seen, but no other peasants. I'm still working on this as he's being like dragged off to prison or whatever. <laughs> like the way they kind of return to these characters and see, we see some of them change and adapt and some of them refuse and just continue right. on. Right, right. Uh, sort of, I think is really interesting right, and well done. Right, right. So I would not have been surprised if they, if the gods had read like Voltaire, right? So uh, Dr. Pangloss yes, or, or something like that. And what I also think was really beautifully done about the world building is there's, because the this is a world that is constantly changing. The people who are in power are constantly shifting and constantly murdering the last batch of people who are in power. And because of that, there are constantly these like remnants of very recent previous civilizations. Um, one thing, one great example of that is I think on page 89, where he goes to visit Dona Akana and there are three little old men dandies from the time of the previous regency without these old men a drawing room just wasn't a drawing room and like just the existence of these three dandies in this room in a time where like there are no dandies in drawing rooms like that is not a reality of our current present but it is this kind of strange holdover from the previous from the from the previous world just because dona akana is somebody who has all of this power and she's able to at least in her own little insular world uh, preserve some of that Mm -hmm. i think um by the very nature of marxist theory and the fact that these brothers living in the soviet union and actually having lived through uh incredible historical events like dan alexander had mentioned that they had been in leningrad during the siege of leningrad as as young young children and young men but that the united states is a very young country in some ways kind of ahistorical so we don't really think of ourselves as living in history 
you know, we, we hear yeah. about history, we hear about the Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, whatever, but we don't think of ourselves as living in and through history. Whereas someplace like Russia, you can't help but realize you're living in history, especially with Marxist theory saying that we have to go through these stages of development. And of course, the big flaw with these space communists is that their theory is wrong, or at least they haven't accounted for this because <laughs> <laughs> they, they're talking about, oh, it's the feudal period. And then like Don Reba saying, I mean, Don Ramada saying, yeah, but they've just jumped to fascism. They've passed the whole capitalist part, you know, industrial capitalist part and just gone straight to fascism. You know, your theory needs to be, you know, checked, right? And they're like, no, 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 it's just let it play out, you know? <laughs> um, it's just so funny to not imagine medieval feudal history as having a fascist element <laughs> like that was the hardest suspension of disbelief part for me was just mm-hmm. like uh you know the idea that there are kings and noble aristocracy but they are not fascist was very funny and like difficult for me to work through until i like you know connected it with the marxist kind of arc of societies mm-hmm. yeah similarly i think the thing that i have the hardest time with is also something that i think needed to be there in order for this to even get past the censors but it's this idea that seems to be kind of hard baked into this text which is that humankind is very naturally and very slowly moving toward a utopian society. And that if we just give ourselves enough time and patience, we are going to get there. And we're going to get to a place where we have an abundance of resources and we are able to take care of all of each other and behave in a way that's humane and kind to the world around us. And I just, I don't know, I don't, I don't personally, to me, that seems a little, um, Overly hopeful and optimistic, especially for the text that we're reading. Right. Well, I think it's pretty clear that at this point, the Sugatskis, or at least Rumada, doesn't subscribe to that anymore. But it's still be by the nature of having to be able to get this book published and them not getting thrown in the freaking gulag. That they have to layer <laughs> this this <laughs> layer of uh, uh, say, okay, it's not perfect, but it's not our Earth. Don't worry about it. It's just a space planet. And this is science fiction. And we, we can do this in a trash medium, uh, you know. Um, and, and don't worry about it. It's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. And to me, it's just hard to imagine that we're ever going to fully progress to this like perfect utopian society. Cause I just think about how like developmentally it is the, the, the teenager's role is to, de- to discover for themselves their own identity and a big way in which the teenager identifies what their identity looks like is by oftentimes rebelling against their parents and rebelling against what they believe, um, people from 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 back in the day used to believe and i believe something different so it seems like there's always this constant tension between the next generation and the previous generation that we're always kind of working to on some level undo what the previous generations have done and kind of reforge it with our own brand on it and just because of that kind of inherent tension that exists from generation to generation it kind of makes that particular part of this harder for it, it, it makes, it really challenges my suspension of disbelief. Right. Um, Aaron, you have a thought? I have a thought on that, but uh, I, I was just thinking that the true communist utopia must conquer and destroy the concept of teenagerhood. And then we'll be fine right. because then you don't, <laughs> we, you just go from child to adult, like in the old days, right. then there's no time right. for rebellion. I think you're, I think you've put your thumb on it in a very, um, uh, sort of funny way, but I think you're right because uh, <laughs> literally, Jeff. I mean, as this book was written in 1964, that is the flowering of youth culture, right? In that 10 years yes. leading up to that, and so that very idea of youthful rebellion as a necessary part of any development 
is not present until literally that point, right? So, so Sikorsky's mm. are looking at it from the other side of that, right? Maybe. And, and it's a modernist, uh, we're postmodern now, but that was still, the Soviet Union is nothing if not mod or, and communism is nothing if not modernist. It's the idea of perfectibility. Now we know that's unlikely. Um, so that the Soviet Union, at least as conceived, was the idea of perfectibility of a society um, and all that. And, and a lot of even the sort of capitalist science fiction of the, you know, the Campbellian is, oh yeah, everything's perfectible, right? And we, we now have a hard time believing in that whether it's from communists or whether it's from capitalism, right? Um, <laughs> it's a, we've lost all hope. We've lost all hope uh, in that particular regard. And so what's left to, except to make jokes, right? And, and like memes on Twitter. So <laughs> yeah. And unless we can find a way to identify and zap out personality types that want to completely take advantage of everything they can in order to gain power and get an upper hand over people, then these kinds of issues are going to persist. But then again, is that also something we want to be doing? Do we want to be identifying specific personality types and eliminating those before they're born? Right, or right. is that its own kind of dystopia? Right, right. Yeah. And there are communists out there that believe and work toward uh like we must have a worker run dictatorship like after the revolution we have to have a period where the workers have to run things politically morally because we can't trust people coming out of our broken system to not try to take advantage of everything and so like it's a bummer but we just got to crack down on people and make sure they do not take advantage of this new system and uh i'm not saying i ascribe to those beliefs but I certainly understand why someone might come to that conclusion seeing, you know, constantly all around me in the American government, like people taking advantage of every little thing they can, squeezing every penny out, finding all the loopholes, mm -hmm. like, oh, it gets my goat. Right, so, right. I get it. Right. And, you know, Ar uh, Ramada says that, you know, because uh, Arada, the band, Arada the Handsome, comes like, hey, give me lightning. He says, no, no, I can't do that because, and he goes through that whole internal monologue of what will happen if he gives him this resource, like, you know, at the surface level, it would be very satisfying for any of these the so-called sprinters, the other observers who decide to go uh, native, for a lack of a better word, and, and you know try to progress society faster than um, you know the observers think it should. And again, this this bandit revolutionary Arada is like, oh, give me this resource, or at least stand with me, so that um, you know. And he's like, no, because you'll if you succeed, all that'll happen is that you'll have all these people that you feel beholden to, and then you'll give them control and property, and all you've done is create another aristocracy, and we're back where we started, you know. Um, so I think the uh, I know the Strugatskis were eventually disillusioned with the whole system, but they had another twenty five years to go at this point when they were writing the book. So <laughs> I, I don't know how much uh, you know the arc of their disillusionment. If this is just the very beginning, or if they were sort of deep in there already but yeah i mean i think there's a lot of things that have to be couched very carefully and you know i don't know what we do now except make jokes about it in a different way you know <laughs> yeah i mean uh i live in minneapolis which i assume people know has undergone some uh violent uprisings in the past few years and so it's just every day it's talk of like how do we keep our eyes on the bigger thing how do we reform the police, our government, but also like, how can we form mutual aid networks? How can we connect with our neighbors to make sure that as these things continue to happen, like there's at least support for those of us that are not in power. And um, yeah, it's a very like present minded, what's the phrase, do what you can with what you have, where you're at kind of thing. And I think 
it does come from, like you're saying, the disillusionment with this idea of this beautiful arc of culture. And so it's just like, no, we're here in the dirt. We don't know what's going to happen, but like, we're going to keep each other safe and we're going to, you know, send each other the memes to preserve our (laughs) mental health and like check in on each other and stuff like that. And so, so we'll just keep doing it until we get hauled away by the authoritarian side. Or if we do succeed, (laughs) then we'll get hauled away as counter revolutionaries after, (laughs) you know, after about 10 years. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think, I don't know. I, uh, I love imaginative utopia fiction, not as a, something that I believe could eventually happen, but just as a way to like train my brain to not get stuck in only imagining the bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you were saying like, it's probably not realistic to imagine this Russia with the astronauts that are over here. And it's not, but like f- this flowering of the idea in my head of that does make it a little easier to sleep at night or does make me a bit more excited trying to imagine what could happen next. And so I wonder sure. if maybe that's the place of this kind of Literature. And I, I see value in that. I think the problem for me, though, is I don't think that's what this text is doing. <laughs> that's fair. This text is not giving you um, a a break from the horrors of reality and the 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 darkness that exists within the human experience. This book <laughs> is deeply exploring that. Yeah. And I think while we are deeply exploring that with having characters that say, well, as long as we're patient enough, all of this is going to work itself out. That was the part that was hard for me. But if I'm reading a book that takes place in this kind of like a utopia and we're exploring that and that is the setting, somehow that's easier for me to buy into. But um, I don't know. Do, do you kind of see the distinction I'm making there? Oh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I guess this is a good point as any, since you mentioned like the imagination and maybe a sense of play. What would you take from this book into a game or imaginative situation whether it's a scene a character a setting uh, whatever whatever it might be can i can i go first oh, i think i have an answer yeah. i love and it's something i had to learn to love but i love giving my players like more power and more information and then the excitement becomes like what are they going to do with all this stuff like you see a lot of dm advice that's like here's how to parse out clues Here's how to make sure the power creep doesn't get too much. Don't hand out too many magic items. But to me, the this is this book is a reminder of like, give them some crazy shit, let them know like what the plot is, and then just watch them like argue over how to approach this and how to best use this great power. Some of my favorite gaming moments have come from that. And I think this book is just a nice reminder of like it can be fun to see people try to figure out how to wield their great powers. Mm-hmm. Mm. And since you mentioned power, obviously different systems approach uh, power, you know, whether it's, you know, rules, power, narrative power. Um, so what might a game of hard to be a good God look like to you? Like what system might you use or, or, or the like? Uh, that's tough. I mean, fiasco would be great. <laughs> because it's like terrible ideas executed to perfection things can't end well but at the same time all the players in fiasco have the narrative power to like set and resolve these scenes and just say like of course i walk through and my magical chain mail keeps me from being hurt um stuff like that i don't know that i would use any really crunchy like D D likes like anything that's like 
do a role. And if it is over your skill, you succeed. Like this seems to start from the idea of like one-on-one you will always succeed. Mm -hmm. It's when someone is up against society that the failures come in. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that ultimately the, the purpose that these characters are given is to observe this planet and to not interfere with it. And that's already kind of an, an interesting starting place for a fantasy RPG. If that's going to be the starting <laughs> goal. Like anti-play. Yeah. Nah. Don't do, do anything. <laughs> Don't interfere. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make the world change. Don't interact with it. Just observe and let us know what you find out. Which is, oh, now I want to play that. That's like such a tempting thing because then like, how long do you let the DM narrate these stupid <laughs> things that you know you could step in and fix before you're like, I'm sorry, everyone, I am going to thwap this guy with my sword and take down the fascists. (laughs) But it kind of reminds me of how, like, when my niece wanted to play Barbies with me, basically (laughs) what it was is she just wanted me to be in the room while she dictated what happened to the Barbies to me. And I can see the kind of judge who might be really drawn to that kind of campaign might be the kind of judge who just wants to perform for you and doesn't actually want your input. I can see that. Um, Aaron, actually, surprisingly, I was reading this book and think, oh, you know, again, it's Soviet science fiction. It's, you know, belongs to this other thing. It's the least close thing I can think of to Appendix N. But as I was reading, it's like, you know what? I think I could actually do this in white box D&D because, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, Don, Don Rumada is clearly an 11th level fighter and everyone else is like a first level or zero level scrub, right? And that's... that's <laughs> right. <laughs> He's he's built his domain. Yep. He has his servants. Uh, he's attracted the servants. Right. Uh, no, I think that would be really fun. Yeah. And I didn't mean to kind of uh, naysay running D&D because it is also like I think the appendix end portion is like this is not far from Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, mm-hmm. right? Like eventually someone gets a helicopter or a laser gun kind of thing, <laughs> which is very appealing to me as well. And right, the philosophy yes. of like, just give them something cool. Right. Yes. Um, so I do see the resonances there and I think it would be really fun right. to just run a straight kind of, you know, roll these six abilities in order. You are level 11. Right. You have infinite gold. All right. What do and you just do? the fact that like, it seems as though this is existing in kind of a hard, hard sci-fi universe but then it's almost like kind of sword and planet i mean it literally is sword and planet we've got people holding swords and this is like you know interstellar travel but like the vibe of this is so not uh sword sword and um um wait what did i just say planet yeah Sword and Planet, Sword and Planet. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. But like, but there's, but there's these like the settings, like the Hiccup Forest right. is just so Dungeons and right, Dragons. The boar of E or the boar of Y or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's yeah, creatures. Here we've got uh, or stooped war uh, or you might. Th- it's going through a list of things you might find in the forest or a stooped warlock collecting secret mushrooms for his magic potions, which could be used to become invisible, turn into various animals, or acquire a second shadow. And then they talk about this like giant hut they find that nobody is actually uh, actually able to enter, but this like mythic beast comes to every twelve years. You know, like it's, all of that's just so D and D, and it's like so scrumptiously D and D. No, uh, by all means. And then as Jeff, as you always say, like you know, let's not use uh, 
orcs or goblins when humans will do and the greys are orcs right and And, and they're so like like beer swilling violent drop of a hat fighters right although in fairness i will say i don't say that you shouldn't do that i just say i think it's more interesting when we don't so i prefer to do that for sure um but then we see like the greys have like as you say they're beer swilling and then like i go wait a minute is that the right screw to use on this particular torture device i broke it but don't (laughs) 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 and they're just like uh you know and again it's an important point like the evil you know we hear i guess i was hannah Arendt who coined that term right the banality of evil or one of those people but it's just it's just like banal goons you know the worst insult that gets wasn't there a moment where like wasn't there a moment where one of the torturers was running late so the other torturers like beat him up or something Something and then like yeah it's just like again it's it's the one of those things like laughing to keep him crying things, but it is actually quite funny in the context of the books. So. <laughs> and also just the casual way that like torture is like, like discussed in this book too. Cause even our main character, like we don't even find out till the very end that he has no fingernails because they happen to be t- like removed from him by the root from a previous torture session that wasn't even in the book. Right. Was, was that it? Yeah. I remember the fingernails. Like I didn't remember that was Ramada, but I thought it was maybe maybe I'm confusing yeah. something. It's which is very possible. Uh, no, I think that's Arata. Arata the the Arata the handsome who doesn't have the fingernails. Because they're going through like here's how he lost his eye from this rebellion. Here's how he became the stoop-backed person that you see from this other rebellion. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Never mind then. In general, the setting is super grim, dark. You know, just people are being tortured all over the place. It's a miserable miserable place to exist. And it, it feels very Song of Ice and Fire in that way. And I'm just curious, Aaron, like, what do you think about having a super grim, dark setting for your fantasy role playing? Uh, I mean, I love Warhammer fantasy role play, mm-hmm. but it is such a fine line. And you see this a lot in, I think, Warhammer communities. If you've ever dipped your toe in, for some people, that kind of grim and gritty stuff is like a, a warning. I think just like it's supposed to be in this book of like, this is the bad stuff. Like you might be scrabbling around trying to survive, but like, it's not an ideal. Um, and I think you see that in Warhammer. I think you see it in 40 K or it, like judge dread is another one right. that I love. Like judge dread is a piece of shit and a terrible fascist system. And he's meant to kind of satirize that, but then you also start rooting for it. Right. Um, and so I think I've, I've never been a, a, game of thrones person because it's not funny enough for me and it doesn't undermine itself and i think that's something i really appreciate about a lot of russian um more contemporary russian literature is like anytime it starts to take itself too seriously it's also kind of pointing at itself and being like isn't this dumb aren't we ridiculous little creatures uh and you kind of find commonality in that as well so i can't get i mean i'm also just like a major depressive so i can't dwell in that darkness for too long without someone undermining it or poking fun at it so i do think you point to an interesting thing about even if it's just a literary character of this country and the russians so russians can point and say this is ridiculous americans are inherently uncomfortable pointing at the ridiculousness of the <laughs> the system which we live and ourselves you know we can make jokes but never at our own expense <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think that's interesting. And, and I think that is potentially as a result of uh, most of us not feeling, well, I can't speak for LGBT and African-American, all, but most of us in the society not essentially feeling that we live in an authoritarian system, rightly or wrongly. I'm not saying that's a correct perception, right? Whereas 
most people in Russia, even communists, post-communists, pre-communists, lived in a very authoritarian system. And that's the only way to survive is to, you know, sort of be the mole. Right. Whereas we have this illusion of freedom. Yeah. And yeah, it's pulling ourselves up. Did we want to, the opening and closing scenes? Did we want to talk about them? Oh, absolutely. There's, they seemed yeah. very weird to me and seemed, I don't know, I really had to mull on those and chew on them for a long time, I think. And like, even on my second read through, I was like, why are these here? Uh, yeah, I also was very confused by them. I thought they were very cool, I thought they were interesting, but this whole like the one way road and the World War II tank. And I'm like, is is this literal time travel? Um, wh- when did this happen in relation to the rest of the story? I wasn't quite understanding that. No, I think there's uh, a lot to unpack. I mean, literally, I think there were what late teens, mid teens in the introduction. Um, and Ramada says he's 35 when he's questioned by uh, Don Reba later on, right? Or the the various whatever the authorities are, uh, you know. On does the text tell us that they're teenagers, or is that something that you're inferring from something? I'm. Uh, in I think it says they're children at least. Right. Like there's some kind of age. Okay. Right. I think they're saying the children, term. and but obviously, as we were talking about before, what constitutes children is a is a looser right. because they didn't have teenagers. But there's enough sort of um, a minor eroticism between. Uh, Anton, who is later Don Ramada, and the um, what's the name of the the woman, the young woman, um, who is this? Is it is it Pashka or is Pashka that the is nickname Paul for his friend? Yeah, who is also right. I was yeah, Anka, Anka, Anka. Right, yes. Right. So that I think it's really meant to contextualize that here, uh, at least at the beginning, it here is him in his sort of pre-fallen state. They're young people. They're make believe. It's it's wonderful to think about this thing, you know, um, but. I mean, there's nothing more defining in the Soviet Union than the Great Patriotic War, right? So that that <laughs> there's that little remnant of like history erupting through to you know this perfect space communism, right? Oh, you know, but we never see this thing. Is this is this just uh, Anton coming back and saying there's this thing on the road, right? They did the other two don't never see that, right? Right, and then it comes uh, and it does say specifically the kids, yeah. which you know, obviously okay. we don't know what exactly that means. It could mean immature but i think ostensibly younger yeah i love that subjective part where they kind of have this falling out as kids and anton's like i'm just gonna go down this one-way road that you all are too afraid and then it cuts to kind of when they come back together and he's like this is what i saw and we as readers don't get to know the truth of that Mm -hmm. and then at the very end when he is kind of in his you know he's back on earth in this kind of Edenic sort of healing nature and his old friends come and visit uh, Pashka is saying like, it just reminds me of that time when he went down the road and saw the German gunman chained to a, a machine gun or something like that. To me, that final piece of text is presented as a way of like, this is important. You are, you, it's your job as a reader to interpret that. And so I was trying to go through just like, what does that mean that Pashka thinks it's so important? This one moment that they, separated and and anton came back with this kind of story and i was trying to figure out if it's like does it mean that anton knows the truth about like fascism in history is it his ability to like keep in mind these awful fascist times in the past and see them coming again or is it like an act of imagination do we think does poshka think that anton made it up but like his ability to imagine things is part of what happened on this other planet because he could 
see the future in the way that these kind of other more traditional people couldn't? I don't know. Or is it possible that in that moment, he's also showing them that he um, isn't as capable of playing by the rules as other uh, people? Right, right. You know, here's this this road that says, you know, wrong way, don't enter one way, whatever. And he does it anyways. And he goes and he has this unique experience they don't have and comes back and has that experience because he wasn't quite able to follow the rules that were given to him. And here he's supposed to be observing this world. And by the end, when Kira dies, he no longer is just an observer. Right. He already wasn't just an observer because he was already trying to protect some of the intelligentsia, but he absolutely wasn't by the end. Right, right. I think there's a lot to both of what things you said. And then on top of that, even though we're talking about supposedly, you know, post-religious atheistic, again, space communists, <laughs> that he's... They see him come back and he's in a fallen state, right? She's afraid. She sees the strawberry juice in his hands. And her first thing is it's blood on his hands, right? You know, right. And he's just so steeped in it. He can never be free of it. And, we, and, and at the end, we don't know because he never says anything after that. She just sees a strawberry juice on his hands, right? Um, so I think there's that, that element of it there too. And that he's gone farther down the road than any of them have been able to or willing to go, right? Um, is he become a full-on sprinter like they described before, the people who who just couldn't accept what they were observing and, and felt like they had to change it? Or is it just simply an act of revenge, you know, uh, you know, that's alluded to or what? We don't know. Um, but clearly they yanked him out of here after whatever happened, you know, which he's gone into great length in the movie and not so much in the book. The book said elides that and, and goes on to. Just like a very literary moment in a book that is otherwise constantly telling us what everyone is thinking and feeling uh, to then leave these big blanks for the reader, I think is like both a gracious act, but also one that I felt untrained for by the kind of straightforwardness of a lot of the rest of the text. I think I just having a very funny, but cynical thought, which is this was also maybe a way to get, past literal minded like cynics and, and like uh, <laughs> and and, and uh freaking uh informer types because they'll get like they won't be able to understand the first chapter so they won't read any further and then when they read the end it's sufficiently ambiguous that they can't pin anything on the Sugatsky <laughs> brothers also at the end so <laughs> I, I would not be surprised if that was part of it that sounds <laughs> accurate believable yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit of plausible deniability because those two those two parts are so vague that you can describe them as meaning lots of different things. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're coming up on the end uh, of our time. Do you have any thoughts, Aaron, that you would like to share about anything that we haven't discussed yet? Or I, I have hit all my notes. Okay. So, Aaron, how about you tell us about if there's any projects that you're working on uh, that uh, have been out recently or coming up that you want people to know about? Um, yeah. I, you can find me on Twitter at Aaron MF King, and there's a link to my game, my games. Uh, there's a link to our podcast, RTFM. Uh, we just released an episode on The Quiet Year. We did Apocalypse World recently. Those are fun. Um, and maybe by the time this comes out, I will have released Speed Rune, my rules lights, Rune Quest inspired oh, lovely. Uh, game. So there you go. That's your entry point there, Amazing. Jeff. That's your entry point that you've been looking for. I'll run I'm, it for you if you want. I got to oh test my it God. anyway. Yeah. Yes, please, please, yeah. please, please. Yes. <laughs> All right. I would love so, that. And that would be on itch.io or we'd be most likely. Yeah. Also. Yep. And there's a link on my Twitter bio to my itch store. I'm terrible at branding. So like. All my different things have slightly different names. <laughs> there you go. You know, I'm an idiot, but that's where I'm at. Well, 
Or maybe that's branding genius branding. because they all sound kind of similar. <laughs> so it tells you it's all the same person. Right, right. That's, that could be. All right. There you go. Uh, well, that's great. And yes, reach out to look for Aaron's work on HIO and other places and uh, reach out and yell and get yelled back at on Twitter if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do too. Uh, all right. Um, all right. If you are interested in uh, what we're doing, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as uh, Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n or at Gmail at appendix and book club at gmail.com. Is that right? Appendix and book club at gmail.com. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to join us for conversations about these books prior to we, to the actual episode recording with the guest. And earlier today, we were joined by Oliver Brackenberry, Robert Coleman, uh, Stephen Wendell, Tom Lucas, Dan Alexander, and Adam Stiers. And that was a really fun conversation, which we are also going to release. We're going to release this one publicly. So two weeks after this episode drops, we're going to drop the Patron Book Club. Um, so that conversation you'll also be able to listen to. Very fun conversation. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to some of our other patrons. Thank you to Adam, Adam Monnier, Andrew Sternick, Trevor Stamper, Thomas Edward, Anthony Tui, Rose City Politics, Ego Orb, Noah Green, Robbie Fioto, and Solomon Foster. We all really appreciate your support. Also, our patrons are able to vote on which books we are going to be covering for future episodes. And the votes are in for episode 136. We're going to be covering Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And for episode 137, we'll be doing William Gibson's Neuromancer. So we're going to have a little bit of a cyberpunk double feature, Ooh. which is kind of exciting. And um, when this episode drops, our patrons will be able to vote on which books we will cover, which book we will cover for episode 140. And Hoy, can you tell us which books are up for votes? Sure. Uh, the theme is YA, why not? Although it's actually a misnomer because most of these are mid-grade books, but nonetheless. Uh, all right. So uh, first choice is Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three. The second book is Susan Cooper's Seaward. The third book will be Alan Garner's The Weirdstone of Brisingamon. And the fourth book will be Patricia C. Reedy's Dealing with Dragons. So there you go. Why a? Why not? Also, I'll say when you said that um, in the patron book club, when you told them that it's Susan Cooper's C word, <laughs> I thought it was like the letter C <laughs> word. And I'm just like, what is this book? What's the C word she's referring to? If this is like YA literature, but for those listening, if you don't already know, it's S E A W A R D right. as in C word, right, the right. direction they're going. Right. We will eventually have a C word episode, but it won't be this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those Lloyd Alexander books are great. I don't want to pad the voting or anything, but I definitely read those when I was young. And there you go. Also, a big uh, Wrinkle in Time fan. That whole Madeline series, Langle. like, yep, yep, yeah, that was nice. my. I never got into Lord of the Rings, but I read the heck out of all those Madeline Langle books, and that's why I am always into the weirder stuff. I think these days, like, give me the weird Christian parable science <laughs> fantasy and not just like the elves and dwarves wandering around right yeah cool perfect <laughs> i like it love it well aaron it's uh, such a pleasure talking to you and this honor. is a fun time all right so we hope to uh, see you in another context uh, soon and in the meantime uh anything else jeff no. Uh, I was just going to say thank you, Eric. Yeah. Really fun conversation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Come visit Minneapolis, the home of role-playing games. 
Absolutely. <laughs> All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.